The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. He came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, he tells his disciples, go the other side. And they do it. Now, sometimes going to the other side isn't an easy thing to do. Sometimes it might cost you. Sometimes it might just be very uncomfortable and scary. I'll tell you what, that these, these disciples, they were fishermen. They knew this lake, this sea. They knew it well. They're professionals on these waters. And they know that at this time in the evening, to cross over to the other side, this is a big body of water. It's not a narrow, long body of water. It's about... Eight miles by 13 miles. It's big. And to get from one side to the other, if you're going to leave at about 6, 7 o'clock in the nighttime when they're leaving, it's going to take you a while to paddle. It's not going to be a quick trip. And there might not be a lighthouse on the far side saying this is where you're going to go. And maybe there might be cloud cover moving across and you might not have stars to get your directions. Whatever it is, they're going to be traveling like that. And they go. They're going to the sea. And it gets better. Because they also know the environment here. They're connected with being outside a lot. And they know when the clouds are certain ways at certain times of the year, you can expect certain kind of conditions on the lake. And on this time of the year, and this set of the day, when looking at those, those clouds and noticing the wind swirling, they know that that is a dangerous place to be. That is a big chunk of water. They're in a small boat. And if the wind starts raging... They're going to sink. And in small boats sink, people, small people in big waters drowned. We're not strong enough to swim that far. And they know this. They're professionals. There's mountains all around this lake. And when the winds start to blow, they can channel those winds. And it would be powerful winds, powerful waves. And these guys know that. And still they go. What a credit to them. What a lesson for us. If Jesus says do something... Don't have to notice everything around you. Just do it. Neat part of this lesson. Now, while they're doing that, Jesus is going to go to a secluded place because he's told all the people go home. 
You've got full bellies. You've been healed. Go. And now that they're satisfied, if only for a few hours, they go. And they all they got what they wanted, and they're all going home. And he's there in a quiet place. And he ascends to the top of the hillside or near the top of a hillside. And there he's going to pray. And it's quiet, except for the wind. And now, why would he do this? Well, there's a couple of things going on potentially. One, in, in Matthew's gospel and these other gospel books, when Jesus goes to a place by himself to pray... It's almost like pay attention because something important is going to happen. When he starts his ministry, he goes to a quiet place, the wilderness, and for 40 days he's praying. What's going to happen after that? He's going to start his public ministry, right? In the garden, before he goes to the cross, he goes by himself to pray. Here, there's been things going on. He's going to a place to pray. He's going to be doing a miracle here in just a little bit. That's one thing about this. But what about the humanity of Jesus? His town rejected him. How sad. Not everybody's receiving him. To be sure, the Pharisees and scribes and the other ones, the political, wealthy, powerful ones that don't like his message, they're in these crowds too. They don't like what they're seeing. He knows that. He just got word that, his, that John, his cousin, he died the way he died. Maybe he just wanted to be on the side of the hill in the lap of his father and just commune with him in prayer. I get it. There's times that I just want to be alone so if I need to cry, I can cry alone. And if I need to shout out to God, I can shout out to alone because I know he's going to forgive my knucklehead statements. He's just going to, it's, it's a beautiful little communion of times. Maybe that's what Jesus needed to do. So that, that's all swirling. So as we're talking about these things today, it's kind of like we're taking a black and white picture and we're putting color on it. Okay, please take notes and then you can take these things. So I want you to remember these things as you go forward and you read your Bible, this Bible lesson again. Because I think this is one we can keep coming back to time and time again. All right, so Jesus is now up there praying. The next part, it says, they're in a small boat, and they're not getting where they want to go because of the winds. And it says it's getting late. If you were, I think it's in John's gospel, it says they're about three to four miles into the trip. They're in the middle of a lake, the middle of a lake. And the winds are coming to get them in such a way as they're probably not going to get across to the other side. They're trying to get there. They've not been successful. The headwinds are getting again. Jesus, interestingly enough, it's, Jesus tells them to go the other side, but nature's coming against them. Son of God is saying for the church to do a mission and ministry, and the world's coming against it. Right? You've got this tension of them trying to plow through it and the world trying to beat against it. And that's where we're at. They're going there. Big winds, big lakes. Again, eight by 13 mile lake. And then it says the fourth hour. Just so you know what the fourth hour is, the Romans had a codes, and, and this was a Roman language. They split the night, Romans and their militaries and their intelligence, they split it into pieces. So from about sunset to sunrise, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., they're saying that that was it. They split that into four sections, and each one of those sections would have been about three hours. So if you had the first watch, you watched from 6 p.m. to 7 to 8 to 9 p.m. Second watch, 9 to 10 to 11 to 12 Third watch, 12 to 1 to 2 to 3. Fourth watch, 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. It was, the, it was those last three hours. Okay, The fourth watch was hard because that was the wee hours of the morning. It's typically cold. The coldest time, it's always coldest just before the sunrise. And if you didn't sleep well all the way up in there, you were staying awake, that's the hard hours. When I'm trying to stay awake on a 24-hour drive, my hardest hours are about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. This is the fourth watch. In the fourth watch, Jesus comes to them. 
Now think about how long they've been on the lake. If they left around sunset, 6, 7 o'clock in the evening, how many hours to midnight? 7 to 8 to 9 to 10 to 11, 12, 5. Let's say they're at the very first part of the fourth watch, 3 o'clock. 1, 2, 3. That's 8 hours. These men have been in the dark on a big body of water and not too big of a boat paddling for their lives against the wind that would not relent because Jesus said so. They've got to be exhausted. I know they're strong men. I know they're fishermen, but they're still guys. They're still people. They're going to get tired and they're going to start to get a little bit afraid about what's going to go on. So on the fourth watch, Jesus is now going to come to them. Now the context where he finds them, this is something we color into. Friends, he's walk, it's at night. And what's the symbolism for us in the night? When is it darkest for us as a people? I've been, I've been looking at people and around people now in ministry through these 20 years, and it hasn't changed. The darkest nights for us are when we have to say goodbye to loved ones. I think that's the single most darkest time. When we're, regardless, if they've had life, long, beautiful lives, or they've been, lives have been robbed and they got something happened to them short time, it doesn't matter. Saying goodbye that way is, is dark. Other darkness comes. Sometimes it comes in the form of, of crashing marriages. When your marriages are coming apart, those are dark nights. When your children are making bad decisions and you know the weight of their decision and they're going to have a hard, hard life. As parents, there's no pain like the pain you experience when your children are hurting. You know this. That's a dark night. Sometimes there's dark nights when your economy's collapsing. Sometimes there's dark nights um, with just bad decisions we make. Sometimes it's a collection of our bad decisions. And the context where we're at right now is a dark night. So we understand the darkness. It's when we see that we feel that God is so far away. Because the opposite of light, God, is darkness, the absence of God. Darkness. So Jesus is coming to them in their dark night, in their place of fear and terror and darkness. And then the other part of this that we want to color in is the sea, the location of where they're at. So if you're on ground and you're traveling in the dark, it's one thing. I know that when my, my wife has been running here the last couple of months, and when she runs around her portions of this lake, um, the paths around the lake, it's a beautiful path. I mean, it's like a highway there. And she's walking. Um, occasionally, she'll see a copperhead snake go across, or those black, those black snakes. And I can tell you, snakes are not her friend. <laughs> she does not like those slithering reptiles. And, um, but now she's, at least she can see them. It's a big path. She can see them coming. She can see them going, and she can get past. I couldn't pay her enough money to walk around that path at night. I couldn't because she can't see. Where's the snake? It's going to be underneath every step I take. And if not a snake, some spider, because a spider somehow can make webs across that expanse. We don't know. It's a miraculous thing of God, but they may expect. And there's these big, juicy spiders in the middle, and you get a face full of spider. You can see them in the daytime. Sometimes. Nighttime, you don't have a chance. Right? So the nighttime in the path, this, this, this walking, um, uh, the, now to the chaos part of it, um, to, the, to the folks in that time, not just the darkness, but the location, chaos was associated with seas. 
So even if you're on land and it's in the dark in the space, it's one thing. But now you add the location of being on the sea, that took it to a whole nother level. In the beginning, when God made the waters and the earth, he separated the waters from the earth. And God is the one who separated them. God said, this far your ways will come and no farther. And the folks thought that we were this disc floating on the depths and there's pillars underneath of it. And it was only God that kept the disc up. It was only God that kept the waters from swamping over. So there's this, this tension between the creator, powerful God of the people and this chaos that was always going to press on them. And the sea was a symbol of that chaos. And if you're going across the ocean and you're swimming across the ocean, all of a sudden you see someone, now you see them gone. We, we know it could have been a great white or an oceanic white tip or something like that because we watched the Shark Channel on Shark Week. They didn't know. They just saw something just took them and consumed them. So it's this mysterious deep. You didn't know how far down. When people don't know, they're terrified. They, like, people want to know the boundaries and have it in our own little boxes where we control it. They didn't have that with the sea. You can't control and box the sea. So now it's dark. Get the combination. It's dark and all that dark means. And they're on the chaos of the sea. Now, where does Jesus come? He comes to that place at that time. Um, he is showing that he is the master of all the things that we fear. All the things that we fear. And he's the master of anything that we think is chaotic and is contrary to God. Just like in Job, there's one God, and he, he establishes that. Just like in the psalm, it says that there is God. Now in Romans, we have it. Now in here again, this is the day where we see the authority and the sovereignty of our God. Jesus is on the water. He's just not in the water. He's walking on it. Think about a boxing match. We're, we're, we're fighting, 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 fighting. I take one, and I finally get sneak one and get him on the jaw, and they lay down. They're laying down, and I'm walking. I'm victorious. When you walk on something... It's a sense of victory over. When they're kneeling and you're walking, it's a sense of submission. There's all of that walking on. So Jesus is walking on the chaos in the middle of the darkness. This is beautiful, guys. This is powerful God stuff. All right, and then he gets there and he says, don't worry, because they're terrified. It's interesting that when humans find themselves in the presence of God, they're almost always terrified. When Moses was in the presence of God in Exodus, I think it was chapter Three in Exodus, he's terrified. Oh, and he was afraid. And God says, take off your shoes, don't be afraid. And then when the mountain, the Lord descends upon the mountain in chapter 20 of Exodus, the people are terrified because God is there and they're going to get wrecked. And he says, no, don't be afraid. I am. He has the name of God in there. I am. Ego on me. And then um, with uh, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah found himself in the presence of the Lord, he says, Woe is me. I'm a man. I have unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I come from a people of unclean lips. I come from a sinful people. I'm wrecked. And no, you're not wrecked. But that whole, when you find yourselves in the presence of God's holiness and power, you can have a sense of holy terror, which means you're not God anymore. That's God. And you realize it. That's a sense of Maybe more like humility, fear, and honesty than it is a, a, a terror. But in that place, Jesus says, don't worry. He says, I am. He used the same words that God gave to Moses with that ego in me. Um, he says, I am in the name of God. And he says, don't be afraid. It's a familiar word to Jesus. He's told that to that before. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Next, what happens? Peter you got to like this guy. He's courageous. He's willing to walk on top of the stormy water in the middle of the night. i got to love that about the guy. However, he also has doubt. And I like that too because he's a lot like me. 
there's a whole lot of stuff that I would like to say I'm, I'm ready for, and when it really comes down to it, I'm kind of afraid. So Peter, I just, I'm really glad that he's captured in the scriptures as being just a person like us. He, he, we can, God like Peter. And he has hope. So there's courage, there's doubt, and there's hope, much like all of us. Jesus says to him, is the if-then statement, Will God, if you are this, then. How many times in our life do we make those statements with God? God, if you only do this, then I'll do this. God, if you do this first, then I'll do this. If you bless me with the lottery, I'll give you half of it. If you give me health, I'll use my life to your glory. If you bless me with a healthy child, we'll do this. I'll raise, I mean, all the if-thens in our life, if you do this, I'll, I'll, oh my gosh, Peter's doing the same thing. God knows the foolishness of it. It's not going to last. He's going to sink. But Jesus still says, come, come on. He says, come on out, Peter. Jesus said it, Peter did it, and he's walking on water. This color, this one in. Um, at night, on the sea, Peter's walking. That's miraculous. No people do that. People just don't do that. But people who have Jesus in front of them and following the command of Jesus prevail. How is it that the church can go against the winds of culture, it goes against the winds of time and persecution and all the deceptive lies that even take us off just one degree as a church? And how is it that we still stay afloat in this world and we can prevail? It's because we do keep the cross in the middle of our buildings. We do surround it with words and sacraments. We do have the body of Christ in the middle. And together we gather in this ship and we cross this sea. There's a lot of color to this. So he's out on the water. It's a miraculous thing. Um, he's trampling on fear, but he sinks. There comes the squirrel, right? There comes that squirrel. Jesus knows we're the dog. He gets it. He still loves us. Squirrel. Um, he sinks. This is really cool. In Romans, it said, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord and you're saved. Here, what does Peter do? He calls on the name of his Lord. And what happens? He is saved. God is a promise keeper, friends. He says it. He means it. We believe it. It's done. Now, more than just saying the words and saving him, this one is special. And it's special in that it's very personal. All right? One of the things about we, in the front, we'll say the peace of the Lord be with you, and everybody says, and also with you. Right? That's kind of impersonal. It's a gift. Where I can only look at one set of eyes at a time, right? So there's, there's at least one personal moment in there. But the rest of them, it's not. But on this one, it goes from being impersonal to very personal. Because Peter, when Jesus comes to him, he reaches out his hand. And he just didn't say, go and get out of the water, Peter. He takes him by the hand. And there's something about that. Right now, in the Rose Garden, there's something. It's not just a verbal link. It's more than eyesight. We've got each other's hand. It crosses a barrier of sorts. It's, it's, it's a, there's more than a physical piece. It's, it's relational. All right? Now, just for the sake of getting this, someone that you know and you like, grab a hold of their hand right now. Just look at them. Just, just grab their hand and just hold their hand. Guys, you're going to feel soft hands. You're going to feel cold hands. You might feel rough hands. Get a hand, please. Inter just go along with the pastor on this one, please. And if, you, if there's three, then grab a hand. All right? Notice the hand. They might be familiar, but something's changed. God walked on this water, and he took him by the hand, and he pulled him out. He pulled him out by his hand. That's personal. 
That is incredibly personal. He called out, and I came to save, and I'm going to take you by the hand. I've been knocked out on boats, and I've had people pull me out um, skiing. The ski whacked me on the head, and I was kind of locked out. It wasn't very personal. They just grabbed me from the back of my shorts and the top of the thing, and they drug me in. But recently, I was able to grab my son by the hand. We actually grabbed wrist to hand, kind of a lock like that. It's a little bit stronger. And pulled him out. Jesus is physically coming across time and eternity in the darkness of the world, in the chaos of this depth, and he's taking us by the hand. He says, I save you. I think that's pretty cool. Just saying. All right, so it's a personal saving. The next thing is, why a scolding? As he's saving them, he's saying, why did you doubt? Knuckleheads! Why don't you believe me? You know why? It's because just a few chapters before in chapter 8, Jesus was in the boat sleeping. They were all afraid for life on this very same piece of water. And in a similar context, wind and waves and storms. And they thought they were going to drown. They were mad at Jesus because he was sleeping and not paying attention to their time of need. And he gets up. He makes the wind stop. The waves stop. He calms it all down. And they say, wow, who is this? Right? That just happened a few chapters before. Can't you remember? When you're having your little darkness with your family moment, can't you remember I'm God? When you're approaching the, your, your gate and place of the grave, can't you remember that I'm God? No, we can't. Fair enough. Jesus is still there. He takes us by the hand, pulls us out. It's okay if we forget. God's still God. He still wins. His love is bigger than our sins. The natural response is the last piece. Is they, 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 when the wind is all stopped and they're in the boat, what happens next? They worship. And this is the last thing you want to highlight as far as the notes. Not the last thing, but one of the last things. So on the worship piece, one of it might be this cognitive music, comfortable, seated place that we, enter, you know, we try to get our minds entertained and our hearts stirred in this worshiping event. That's one way of thinking about what worship is in church. There's another worship, and it's more along the lines of what we get from the book of Job. We get from Psalms, and we get from this other one, from Romans. It's a submission. You only get that in a posture. When they're in the boat, they fell in the boat, which means they're probably on their knees. And they probably even maybe had their heads down. One of the prayer postures from the ancient church was this. You just put your elbows down, your hands up, and you pray. If you're able to try that sometime, I know that knees get tired, back gets tired, shoulders don't work. When we get older, stuff happens. If you have the possibilities to be someplace where you can kneel, try kneeling and pray and see what that posture communicates in your prayer times. Try, um, even even if it's in your bed with a pillow underneath you, put your hands up, your face down, knees down, and pray. That's submission. Your posture is communicating. In this end of, the, of this piece here, they worshipped him. After all they had just experienced in their exhaustion and in their obedience and in their fear, they saw Jesus for being the God he is. And they were on their knees in the boat and they submitted. You are God, we're not. Thank you for being this kind of a God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for saving us. What a beautiful moment on a calm lake. Worshiping. 
Their confession is something that we need to remember from this day going forth. If you wanted to circle it on your papers, they said, you really are the son of God. Wow. What a miracle it is that these knuckleheads of peoples would be able to be able to say that. And even if it's only for a moment, realize the depth and the truth and the beauty of it. You really are the son of God. Now, that said, as a church, we remember that today. In the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our storms, in the midst of all of our fatigue, our exhaustions, our worries, our questions, our fears, and all the squirrels that are taking our attention off of God, we remember that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have the hope and the assurance and the hand reaching out from time and eternity saying, You're mine, I save you. We've got that good news. But there are people in our families that don't believe that. There are people in our families that have been chasing squirrels so long they've forgotten where the cross is at. They've forgotten where Jesus is at. There's people in, this, in our world around us that have never been raised in godly families or in godly communities, and they do not know this good news. Paul said, happy are the feet of those that bring the good news. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless they've got the preacher? How they preach unless they have someone that's been sent? You are sent, church. It's me. It's all of us. We all, you had the capacity to share this story with someone in your life between now and the next year. Pray for that day. You can say, God, whoever that person is, pray for them to hear it and pray for me to say it. But this world needs to hear this story today. This is just one example of the same story over and over and over again. You're the ones to say it. To your families first, to your friends next, to your neighbors after that, to your co-workers, and just about anybody God puts next to you on a plane or a train or an automobile, when you have the opportunity, you share this message. If not you, who? They want the good news too. They're God's kids too. So on this one, today, we know Jesus. We remember the story. But as a church, we remember that we're to make Jesus known. Two things. That's all we got. Know Jesus and make him known. God help us be this church. Amen.